From Relay FM, this is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 33 for December the 13th, 2022. I am your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by our director of strategy, Julia Alexander. Julia, welcome. Happy holidays to you. How are you doing? Happy holidays. I'm good. I'm in full. I mean, I have a bit of a cold, but I'm in full holiday swing. Like, I'm I, very excited. I feel like a bit of a cold is part of the holiday experience, quite honestly. It's part of the part of the deal unfortunately yeah there's what i don't know if anyone else has experienced this it's like one that goes back and forth over the last two months between my like kevin and i we just like are sharing i guess a different version of the same cold and so it's just been a constant of like he's sick i'm sick but it's fine we're here it's almost christmas it's it, it is it's getting very close but we have we have one more normal episode for this year and then we're gonna uh, in a couple of weeks we're gonna come back with a uh, a special bonus episode to just tide you over to the new year. But uh, for this episode, uh, I wanted to start with HBO and HBO Max and Warner Media and the whole thing there. We've been talking about it a lot. It's been one of the real stories of uh, of the last few months. We, we we devoted all of our time to people named Bob last time. So I thought we would shift gears <laughs> um, and talk about HBO Max a little bit. You had a great thread uh, on Twitter yesterday. For those who are not on Twitter, you know, uh, we'll, we're going to talk about it. Um, but I just wanted to tick through a, a little bit of the news first, which is um, there are rumors that they're uh, considering calling the new combined Discovery Plus and HBO Max Max, just a name. It's a guy. It's Max. Go visit Max. <laughs> um, uh, they they did some more programming shenanigans where um, Westworld is going to get, which got canceled, is going to get pulled from HBO Max, which is quite a dramatic thing, given that the original premise of HBO Max was like all the all of the shows you love from HBO in one place. Now they're like, you know, that show that just finished, it's going to go away. And where's it going to go? Nobody really knows. Nobody's really saying. Also, The Nevers, which is a troubled, troubled show, was a Joss Whedon show. He had all of his issues and kind of got pulled off of it. They brought in some new people to finish it up. They they aired the first half of the season, promised the second half. The second half has been produced. It's never aired. It is not going to air. It's going to get pulled off of HBO Max. In that case, it's a, from a different studio. So they will... Uh, or isn't that... Is that right? Or no, that one's... They, they also canceled the show... For a different studio there's so much going on here anyway it's hbo shows that will disappear from hbo max some of them without even airing all of their episodes um and i'll do a footnote here too which is remember when they launched hbo max and pulled it off of uh prime video channels and apple tv channels and all of that saying no it's just in our app it's back on prime video channels now so maybe in the end there's a never mind happening there too uh yeah a lot a lot of hbo max stuff for us to talk about i feel like yeah, I love this. We're going from the Bobs to Max. Eventually, we'll just mm. have breakdowns of episodes by names. There will be like a Steve at some point, yeah. and it'll just it'll all work out. All uh, the pluses Alan. are going to be replaced by people's names. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll be like being in the first grade all over again. Um, so yeah, let's let's take this bit by bit. Effectively, what is happening is kind of uh, HBO being forced to navigate multiple dads over the last few years mm. and trying to figure out how to please or at least not get in the crossfire of new dads. So when it went from Jason Klar to David Zaslav, a big thing that we've talked about in this podcast is all of the restructuring and all of the synergies that were trying to be cut in order to kind of cut $3.5 billion worth of synergies. They're trying to find a way to save money and pay off this a huge amount of debt that they were bringing in. 
As we've also talked about in this podcast, hosting TV shows tends to cost money, whether it is through, and so you amortize those costs over certain years, over a certain number of years, rather. When you look at it from any different perspective, you're either paying licensing fees. So when we look at shows like Minx that was just canceled from Lionsgate, that show they would have had to pay Lionsgate to host. Like they're paying for that series. If you look at shows like Westworld or The Nevers, you're often playing, excuse me, you're often paying in, um, back and back end fees. So you're paying out uh uh residuals for the cast and and and, and writers and directors and everybody involved with that process. So there's a fee to keeping these shows, even if you own them. When we look at it was funny, I was just talking to a friend who texted me, he was a big fan of Westworld and said, What what is happening? What what does this mean? Which is effectively the heart of our podcast. It is what as consumers, how do you navigate all this stuff? And right. if you're in HBO shoes, you're actually asking the same question. So what they look at, this is my, I don't have any inside knowledge into this, but this is what I imagine happened. When you have someone like David Zaslav looking at these shows, what you're looking at is this balance sheet. And you're effectively saying, okay, we're going to do a cost analysis really quick. Westworld, which is a show that was designed for a linear network, might bring in viewers over the course of its, you know, three, four seasons that it airs. You know, less viewers as time goes on, but there's a reasonable case you can be made for having that show in a linear network where the audience is. The metrics for success between linear and SBOT are very different. On linear, the goal is to get people to watch and to engage, which is why HBO tends to have their key tentpole titles every single quarter. And then they have pay one windowing from big movie studios that would now be Warner Brothers to kind of make sure that people are good all year round. They typically have boxing. There's things that they do to ensure that people are kind of engaged with it. And they're also signing up for the main show. On an SBOD platform like HBO Max, the metric of success for that show is, does it acquire new subscribers? Does it retain high-risk churn subscribers? And does it act as a strong referral portal to other licensed and original series? There's these three different kind of buckets, you know, that you can then break down into much more granular detail, but that's kind of what you have to do. So when you look at Westworld, when there was, I I tweeted about this months ago, when everybody was looking at the viewership decline, they were saying this is a big deal for Westworld and HBO Max. My argument was it's a big deal for HBO as a channel, not necessarily Max, because if it was reaching audiences that were high risk churn and they were just signing up and they were just staying for Westworld, or if it was acquiring a really strong percentage, a meaningful percentage of new subscribers, it actually accomplished its goal for that SVOD platform. Now, we can assume based on the cancellation and based on this deal that it was not doing that on the end. So from a financial perspective, you can see Warner Brothers Discovery's point from the David Zaslav point of view, like, right, right. You can like, you can see it in your, in your head, what what they were doing. Here's the issue from the HBO perspective that I was talking about in my thread. HBO has licensed series for years. HBO has struck a deal in 2014 with Amazon to license out key series like The Sopranos and Sex and the City and Curb Your Enthusiasm so that if people didn't want to go watch the shows on HBO and their HBO Go at the time, they could watch it via Amazon Prime Video. And that was a big deal. They got about $300, $350 million in that deal, which is a huge amount. But here's the key difference. When HBO was licensing these titles, and it wasn't license, licensing out Game of Thrones, the idea was that you had to go to HBO or HBO Go to, or have HBO Go, which is part of your cable plan, uh, in order to watch the new Game of Thrones seasons. This eventually became HBO Now. Difference is because just because HBO lent out or licensed out those titles did not mean they were gone from the HBO Go and HBO Now platform. It still existed there right. because HBO was always designed as a destination. It was designed as a destination in cable. It was designed as a destination in SVOD. What HBO will effectively become, if this current behavior continues, is a hub. 
It is a feature on a platform called Max. Yeah. It's not even the crown jewel anymore. It's not any of this stuff. What you're doing is devaluing the brand, which is the crown jewel of your platform. And so when you take out something like the Nevers and Westworld, it's not that those shows are huge drivers of revenue. No one is out here saying, well, they're the equivalent to Game of Thrones. What you are saying, though, is that in order to watch those shows, people either have to buy them or go to a platform that is not HBO uh, associated, and they can no longer get it on the HBO associated platform. So if you think about that from a branding perspective, what HBO has spent 30 years trying to accomplish, when you think about that from a talent relationship perspective at a time when competition for talent is super high, all of these intangible assets become really key to that decision making. And under previous regimes, so if you kind of look at Jason Kalar, if you look at Richard Plepler when he was head of HBO back when it was still uh, within Turner, when you look at all these different things, they got that. For all that Jason Clark got a lot of flack for, for the, the day and date movie stuff, he understood the HBO side. He was like, I'm going to let Casey do Casey. I, I'm going to give them the money they need in order to do it. I just want to add on top of that to the max component. With this decision, it is very much like, oh, well, we can we can kind of take apart HBO Lego piece by Lego piece. And it is a fundamental difference in kind of the philosophy between HBO of prior being Warner Brothers Discovery and HBO now. And I imagine, again, I have no inside information on this, but I imagine that that is going to cause uh, some turmoil. Yeah, Westworld is one of those things that like it, it is a, a multi-year running show. It had a lot of buzz. It mm-hmm. did tail off. I would, as somebody who watched all of it, I would say it tailed off in quality as well. Um, but <laughs> But that, uh, and, and really just like, I don't know, full of great ideas. I thought the fourth season started out so great and then they ran out of ideas and they're like, uh, I guess it's the end. <laughs> uh, it was very frustrating, but it's like an HBO show. It is one of their, it was at one point, one of their headlining shows. And that's the weird thing about this move to me. As you said, it's not putting it elsewhere, experimenting with it on other platforms. It's removing it from HBO Max. So like, a show that is synonymous with HBO in many ways. And I, I get it. It's not a, a top tier HBO show, but it's been one of the leading lights of HBO in the last five right. years. To not have it there is so strange. And I do think goes against the brand promise of, uh, right. you know what you're going to get on an HBO streaming platform, which is the shows you know are on HBO, even if there's not a lot of logic. And I know, you know, I could list off, we could all list off the shows that we know are on HBO, right? Um, And so to have some of them not be there, it just seems very, very peculiar to me as as a branding thing. And then, you know, the other thing you mentioned, which I would love for you to talk about a little bit more is like demoting HBO to be a hub, like on one level, Maybe it's good if the pressure's off, but on another level, it is the crown jewel. So is this the is is I'm struggling with this because I'm sure that there are some good financial reasons why some of this is going on in the short term. But it seems like a very weird move in terms of uh, an overall strategy. Yeah. And. A good thing to compare it to is if we look at what the Marvel Cinematic Universe has become under Kevin Feige and the idea that they want to collect everything and host it all on Disney+. Plus. This does not mean that Marvel movies don't appear elsewhere. God knows they appear everywhere almost all the time. But they are centrally located on this hub that is becomes, you know, the Marvel page, the Marvel landing page on Disney+. Plus. And you know that even if you're watching something here, you know that you can go to the main Disney Plus home and you're going to have every 
single Marvel title that you want. Yeah. Now, HBO has built up a similar type of experience just without connective IP, right? It's this idea of like, well, it's an HBO title. It is it is that branding and they want to hold on to it. By not having everything on one platform, by saying we'd rather not take on the incremental cost, which I imagine is not super high. What you're saying is we can just get rid of certain titles and that it doesn't mean anything. And to Jason's point, Westworld, you know, is a J.J. Abrams produced, uh, Jonathan Nolan, Lisa Joy created series. These aren't, it's not no one, nobody creators, right? It's, it's, it's huge talent. And you can say, you can say a lot about the J.J. Abrams bad robot Warner Brothers Discovery situation in general, which has just not been good under Zaslav. And, and there's a lot to be said about J.J. Abrams taking on this huge amount of money and not really producing anything within that time period. And so there's there's a lot behind the scenes as well as there always is with these Hollywood cases. But what was explicitly clear during the AT&T acquisition of Turner, which then or Time Warner rather, which then became Warner Media, was that HBO was central to the reason they decided to do this. Like they got Warner Brothers IP, which was or the Warner Brothers and the IP associated with that, which is great. But HBO was this core thing to build your platform around and then create the Mac side of things. You know, there were there was rumors that it was always going to eventually become Max and Maybe that's true, maybe that's not, but to, you know, Jason Clark and even John Stanky over in AT&T, they were pretty good about letting them do what they're going to do, which is the way that if you look at HBO acquisitions over the last 25 years, is how you handle it. You kind of protect HBO. They've always been insulated because they've always produced Emmy award-winning hits. They're a profitable company. They do strong revenue. And so it was kind of like they knew what they were doing. You know, I had a conversation with an HBO executive who we were talking about the AT&T situation. And they said to me, you know, the, the irony is that we were really concerned about AT&T. When AT&T came in, it was like, these are two different cultures, which you can read about. There's been many public reports about this. But the bigger issue, uh, according to this person who will remain unnamed, uh, was is, is, Warner, is, uh, is Discovery. Because although they thought they were going to be more simpatico, they couldn't be more different. And I think this is a great example. When you look at HBO, a lot of HBO is a lot of tangible assets. You can point to shows that have won Emmys. You can point to the revenue that it brings in. HBO at its core is an intangible uh, ambiance, right? It is. It is. It is the equivalent to a twenty-four in theaters. It is the equivalent to that feeling you get when the, there's certain scores wash over you, like. That that thing that they have built a long time curating and building and proving that they can generate that kind of immediate attachment to something based on just the branding alone comes from relationships with talent. It comes from trust from audience. It comes from spending a little bit more than others would and betting on talent that maybe others wouldn't bet on and really hoping that it pays off in the long run. And by taking apart, again, by treating HBO like Lego, like, well, this can leave because it no longer does anything for us and this can go over there. What you're saying is, well, the whole house can collapse because we can just rebuild and we can just really focus on what works. You need a little bit of both. And again, I, I really want to stress this. There is a financial you, – you, I can see the financial reasoning from Zaz. Like I, I can see why they would do it, especially when you're trying to chase synergies, especially when you're promised – you promised the street, you know, you're going to get – you're going to have a profitable service by 2024 when you're going to fix all your EBITDA problems. Like I get why they are looking at all of this, but – HBO 
is not just a random brand that you can kind of go into and dismantle and hope that it all works out. It's a very calculated, a very curated, a very uh, strategic component of the entertainment industry that is run by some of the best creatives working today. And I think the fundamental difference in the approach to intangible assets will inevitably have the poor outcome that I don't think he necessarily anticipates. Because for all of the walking and talking that uh, or sorry, excuse me, for all the talking that Zaz did before they acquired, you know, Warner Media, when he went around town and took talent and talked about how great it was going to be for everyone again, every single action has kind of been counterintuitive to that. And so you look at what's happening with Westworld, and maybe Westworld is not Game of Thrones, you know, are they ever going to remove Game of Thrones from HBO Max? No, like, that that's just not going to happen. But you do look at this and you say, well, what else might just be kicked off? And then from yeah. a branding perspective... If that ends up on a fast service, right, so a free advertisement-supported uh, television service like a Pluto TV or a freebie, if that, if that ends up on one of those or on the one that Warner, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery wants to launch, what does that say about HBO programming? Do you devalue it? It's, it's, it's exclusively available here on this right. ad-supported platform. And it's like it's not like you're saying we're taking some of our programming as marketing in a way and putting them on this platform to generate extra revenue and also to remind people how great HBO is. It's like, no, we're actually taking shows that aren't performing. We're putting them on this platform that we hope people kind of just tune into because it's free. And now you've got this huge dichotomy between HBO executives and talent, which is like, hey, if, is my show going to end up on this platform or do I get to be part of, you know, the the grander HBO hub on Max? Yeah, I was thinking, you know, I don't want to overstate it about Westworld because Westworld is, a, you know, a a lower tier kind of player, but right, it, it right. is but it is still something that was a premier flagship HBO show for a few years, and I feel like it's also representative of those other shows. So like it's the brand promise of HBO ha streaming has HBO shows on it. And then you go and you look for, for some of them that you identify with HBO and they're not there. And the two that Im immediately struck to mind that are in this category are Six Feet Under and True Blood, right? Yeah. These are shows that are HBO shows. They just are. They are HBO shows. When you search for them on the on Google, what do you get? You get the HBO page for the show as the top result. They are HBO shows. Are they huge hits? No. Are they catalog titles now that are kind of old and people don't even remember them? Yeah, kind of. But one of the brand promises of HBO Max as a streaming service was you don't just get the current stuff. You get this rich curated library of shows that people have loved for the last few decades. And when I see Westworld getting yanked off of it, I'm like, okay, what's the promise then? Because I would assume at that point, any show that's, that's sort of like tangibly part of the HBO experience and the mindset and like what we think of as HBO that isn't, you know, basically isn't calculating out in a spreadsheet somewhere is just going to get yanked off and go into oblivion or into a weird fast channel or get resold mm -hmm. somewhere else. And it's mm -hmm. like, it's, it just seems, it just seems like a, like a, a, a an own goal kind of, where it's like, no, 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 no. You're now devaluing the brand while you're right. saving some pennies. And again, I can't, I'm not privy to the, the, the dollar side of it. I'm sure, like you said, I'm sure that the, that it pencils out from a money standpoint, but like, what are you doing to the HBO brand by breaking up the archive and, and making HBO streaming literally just uh, what's on now?
And and I just want to reiterate because I think that it's really clear in uh, the more that I talk to people in the industry, the more that I talk to people outside of the industry but who are interested in it. We have a really short term memory um, with streaming. We we have a there. It almost feels very much like you know BCAD. There is kind of like before streaming happened and then after streaming, and there, and we kind of lose track of everything that kind of happened before to an extent. And there's a lot that happened and. Specifically, there was a period of revolution in terms of how we were doing things between the mid-90s and the mid-2000s. Um, it was the DVD and uh, rental age. It was uh, DVD and Blu-ray were coming into play. Um, it was also digital, right? iTunes had come out, like like Steve Jobs had revolutionized how people were buying things. Like all these things were happening. And what became very clear in those moments was that the consumer journey was going to shift the behavior of consumers was going to shift and companies could either uh, encompass it and lean into it or they could fight it and lose out. And part of what that meant was meeting consumers where they were going to be, but understanding that consumers want everything everywhere all the time, uh, not just to bring up the movie, yeah. Uh, but but they, they, they do want that. And so if you talk to a lot of executives, they understand. They're like, if I could put Avatar 2 out on Disney Plus and in theaters, people would love it, but we're going to lose a lot of money if we do that. So we're not going to do it. When we think about TV networks and streaming services. And this is what we really need to understand. The future is inevitably taking your content and putting it as many places as possible. It's just going to happen. There are there there will inevitably be a Netflix and HBO style fast channel somewhere. Like it's it's just going to happen because the revenue that you can make from people who are already paying for services and want free entertainment because we want more and more and more and more. We're filling all of our minutes of the day with focusing our attention somewhere on like entertainment or whatever it might be when we're not being productive. Um they're going to look for more options to do this. It's why YouTube is still seeing a huge growth uh, in terms of usage, not, maybe not necessarily from an ad perspective because of the market currently, um, but, but they're still seeing huge growth because people still want free programming. Now, what does that mean from a strategic standpoint? Remember what I just said, their executives know that people want everything everywhere, but they have to make decisions about how to do it in order to generate the strongest revenue and how to protect branding. And so the difference, in my opinion, between meeting fans where they are, leaning into fandom, leaning into consumerism and saying, yeah, of course, we're going to have things in theaters. We're going to have things on fast. We're going to have things on streaming. We're going to have things on linear as far as as long as that continues. It is understanding which networks, which content, which IP to kind of manifest this this cross consumerism, cross platformism in which ones to say, no, we're holding this back because we're proving a point about this intangible asset, which is brand value, which is um, sentimentality towards uh, a network, all these different types of things. And if you're, if you're, if you're me, if it was me and I'm running it, I'm looking at HBO and I'm saying, there's, we are absolutely going to put shows like Westworld and the Nevers and the Sopranos on a fast channel those shows are absolutely also going to remain on HBO Max. Yeah. It is not a thing where it's only going to go there and now we are splintering the idea of what HBO is. It is, no, no, you want to watch something for free on HBO. You're not going to, uh, you want to watch free HBO programming. You're not going to get new HBO programming. But if we're going to strike this deal with Roku or Amazon and they're going to pay us $250 million to have access to older shows that we know we've already made money on those shows from the customers we are going to make money on those customers from. And this expands our TAM. 
Absolutely. There's, there's no question in my head you do that. It's, it's, you know, in my opinion, is the equivalent to the office debate. You know, do you bring the office and try to make money off the owned and operated segment of that? Or do you say, hey, we're going to pay three times what it's worth from Netflix. We've already made the money we're going to make on the office fans from, you know, from the, the linear side. Like that, that aspect's done and we can continue making way more money if we model it out over there by licensing it out to a bigger, a bigger player, you know, that kind of conversation happens at all these different companies. And it will happen with the biggest brands and networks you can think of because that programming is valuable. The thing I I really want to stress to executives listening to this is by looking at the short term profit, right, the, the, the quick gain for quick pains, like that type of thing. If you look at that, and your and your thing is, we're going to take part of our programming and increase the value of its licensing ability by offering it exclusively to a different network that we know may find a different audience who engages with it more so than our subscriber base, the long term effect on that intangible asset, which is sentimentality towards a brand, adoration for a brand, and brand value and network value is huge. And so just think about, okay, we, instead of, instead of readdressing goals and saying, we're not going to sacrifice this thing, we are going to bring down our guidance a little bit. We're going to say, hey, in order to reach this, you need, you can stay with us and we're going to, we need another year in order to accomplish the same goals, but we're protecting our long-term investment. That's where I would focus my attention. And I think, I think there's a, a, a conflation happening, Jason, on Twitter. I see it a lot between people saying, how could HBO Max or Warner Brothers Discovery do this? Instead of saying, how can they do something like this without, you know, really sacrificing the branding that they're going to do? And the final word I'll say on this is a lot of people on Twitter, very, very upset that a company that owns content is going to do something with it. It's it, it, it. What they're doing is not a terrible thing to creators. They canceled the show already. It's not like it's not like the show. It, what, what they did to the Lionsgate TV teams in terms of Minx and the other show that they canceled. Well, they were already in work, yeah. like yeah. in production. That's not cool. Like that's 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 absolutely not okay on the creative side of things. And that's when I talk about talent relationships. The other, the Westworld, the Never is they were done. Like they they were already done. They, they own that. They can do whatever they want with it. The the decision that they made with it, in my opinion, is 50% correct, 50% incorrect, and we're focusing on the incorrect side of it. And the correct side of it is like, yes, make money on shows that are not making money on your own and operated platform. Like, that makes a ton of sense to me. But there's I, people on Twitter, you, it, 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 they got paid. The teams got paid. They canceled the show. That's their right to do. And that's just that's just the that's just. Business. Yeah, I think there is, uh, at least in some people I've seen who are on the creative side have said that they feel like it's a way for them to basically just avoid paying any royalties, any residuals for streaming that that, you know, why do we want to pay for this? But that's a weird argument only in the sense that if if people were watching it, that's why they would get pay, paid residuals. <laughs> and if people were watching it, they would want to have it. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not I'm not sure that that entirely follows. But um, yeah, it's definitely a branding mistake, if if nothing else. Um, we'll be interesting to see how this plays out in the long run and what else, what other dominoes might fall, right? Like, um, this is probably the beginning of this or, or the middle of this. It's not the end. So 
Oh no, this is going to continue for years. Yeah. We're going to keep watching <laughs> yeah. what is going on with yeah. uh, Max and HBO Max and HBO and all the rest. Okay. Um, Good news for our podcast. Lots of, yes, lots of Max, <laughs> lots of Bobs. Um, and before we go on, I want to take a break and tell you about our sponsor. We have a sponsor. This episode Ooh. is brought to you by Masterclass. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best artists, icons, and leaders anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. With over 180 classes from a range of world-class instructors, the thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. You can, for example, discover the art of business strategy with some guy named Bob Iger. I mean, I guess, whatever. Uh, you know, business is a chess match. So is chess. Gary Kasparov has a master class. class. You can learn about that. Aaron Sorkin has a screenwriting class. It's true. And Margaret Atwood has a creative writing class. Pretty good people. Pretty good names there. Um, I listened to the uh, master class by Neil Gaiman about storytelling. It was really awesome. Uh, and that's just one of the many, many classes that are available. Masterclass gives you cinema quality classes are very high production values that offer unparalleled access to a host of renowned instru instructors these are not like shaky youtube videos uh of somebody on a stage that's badly lit these are like super highly produced um lessons of approximately 10 to 15 minutes so they can fit into your life uh you can get it on a phone a tablet an apple tv computer uh, there's an audio mode for to basically make them podcasts. Uh, so whether you want to learn how to make dinner worthy of a Michelin star or uh, just how to make good scrambled eggs, whether you want to, uh, you know, uh, guide Disney or something like it, maybe those executives who are listening, they can uh, pick some tips up from Bob Iger. Maybe. I don't know. There's probably a class for you in the uh, over 180 exclusive classes taught by these instructors at Masterclass. Check it out this holiday. Give the perfect gift of an annual Masterclass membership and get one for free, too. Mm. com slash downstream is the URL for that. Go there today. That's masterclass.com slash downstream. Terms apply. Thank you to Masterclass for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. All right, Julia, I, um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Jason Kalar is now a, a, a he's a free agent he's a uh, he's a pundit uh and he wrote a, a wall street journal piece in which he predicts the future of streaming media that's not a bad person to hear from i think it's i yep. i was surprised to see his byline in the wall street journal i'm like all right okay he's got nothing else to do right he's sitting around <laughs> i don't know if he's i don't know if he's just sitting around but i i definitely think he has a what i call the uh bob Iger sit back move mm. of they've they they entered streaming at a very specific time they exited streaming at a very yes. specific time and they've both had time to sit watch listen consult and now we're now we're coming out and saying here's my right. take on what's about to happen right. and bob Iger now has a job and jason kalar will have a job at some point somewhere it's there who knows what it will be but a very bright guy uh so I just wanted to sort of recap what his uh, predictions are and get your your thoughts on what he's saying mm -hmm. here. So he said, among other things, there will be multiple business casualties in the paid streaming wars and a few b business victors. There will be no more than three global entertainment companies that are likely to attain the streaming service scale required. That's 300 million global subscriptions at an average of $15 a month to generate attractive cash flows. Amazon and Apple will be scored differently because, as we've talked about here, they're kind of playing a different game. Expect two or three major mergers and or acquisitions involving entertainment companies in the coming 24 months as a result. So what do you think about this? I, I, I always think this was interesting. I talked to an analyst at one point in the early days with smartphones, and he said he thought that the, that it wouldn't be like personal computers where there were 
two operating systems. There was like, you know, Windows and then the Mac, and that was it. He said, I think there are going to be three platforms for um, for smartphones. And it turned out, no, it was two again, um, <laughs> which I always thought was interesting. Like, how, <laughs> what is the dynamic of a market? Do you end up with two? Is it always pushing toward two or are there three? I think it's, this is a very different market, but Jason Kolar saying, like, really, we're going to end up with three major players that are going at it at scale that are not tied to some sort of an ecosystem play like Amazon and Apple. Uh, What do you think? Does it sound about right? Yeah, I think we've been saying three to four for a few years uh, collectively as an industry. And I think the more that we look at the cost associated and willingness to sustain cost and ability to sustain cost over increased investment because all the content is getting more expensive there's really only a few options right so netflix is a global yep. leader netflix and disney netflix, are a given right and he says ne- no more than three right. so it's really like netflix and disney and maybe there's one more chair I think what you end up seeing happen is Netflix and Disney remain. Whether or not Netflix remains as an independent company or Netflix is acquired by a larger tech and or gaming company, right? right? I think there's a lot of people who would talk about Microsoft Netflix as a really great um, uh, company. Lena Khan, that was like the the most devastating thing someone could have said, uh, is after Microsoft tries to acquire Activision, uh, next they'll try to acquire Netflix. But you can see that that kind of that kind of um, thing working, right? There's there's a there's a relationship there, especially as Netflix gets into games and Microsoft wants to get more into entertainment. You could see how owning that direct to consumer relationship, especially as Microsoft has these giant boxes that become home entertainment systems that sit in people's homes, uh, would be would be very lucrative, uh, potentially. So I think Netflix for sure, Disney for sure. Disney has the ability and the resources to continue sustained investment. Uh, so it's not like they are necessarily looking down a very rapid, you know, like they're in the barrel going over the waterfall, that they've got some time. I think what you end up seeing inevitably is one more major... So I, I think there's one to two more major consolidations. I think what happens is discover, Zaz ends up selling right. WBD to my bet would probably be a Comcast. Brian Roberts has the money for it. Brian Roberts is very interested in kind of scaling. Um, the, the the issue with this is that you kind of buy to pure scale, right? It's not like you're buying supplementary uh, or supportive content. Like you kind of are, but you're also like, it just gets to what you're like, are you just buying content to have content? But here's what I think happens. I think that ends up happening. I think they then, or, 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 Comcast buys Paramount, which also seems very likely. They divest a bunch of the new stuff. They, they figure out a way to do it. Uh, ideally, this gets approved by the FTC in their eyes, and then they go they go forward. What ends up happening at that point, I think, is a very very smart strategic third party third party partnership. I think what you have is is almost kind of deal situation where Paramount and Com- and Comcast, along with Warner Brothers Discovery, work together on creating a global service. We already kind of see it with Sky Showtime uh, in Europe, where they create a global streaming service and they split ad revenue. They, they, they split like all the subscribers. They, they go down, they figure out what that is. And then domestically, they agree to only license with each other, right? 
Now, this gets into huge anti-competitive yeah. stuff. So what I'm, what I'm saying is the FTC would be very involved in this, and it may not likely happen. But I think if you play that game out, if Netflix and Disney are kind of your core buyer, your, your, your core distributors, it leaves these three. And all three of the companies that I just mentioned at the end of it, Paramount, NBC Universal, and Warner Brothers Discovery, are great content suppliers. They are massive content suppliers. So they either all work together on one global offering and then domestically keep their services where they are because global is where the major- vast majority of sp- subscriber growth is going to come from. And if you increase prices in uh, certain territories, you can hit really strong ARPU. And so you can kind of figure out a way to 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 ensure that your global focus really uh, offsets your, your domestic focus. Or you have a situation where Paramount and uh, Warner Brothers Discovery or NBC Universal and Warner Brothers Discovery partner up, they combine, and then one of them goes back to being like a Paramount goes back to being a pure content supplier. Right. We don't want to play in this game. We don't think it's going to happen. We're going to just sell and license because these three services now need our content more than ever, and therefore it's more valuable. It's kind of like what we look at with sports, right? Where sports, well, I think one of the points that Clar pointed out was that sports could make more money by not being exclusive to one yes. channel. And, 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 and you'll see that that like the the distributors feel the same way like if it, you already see it with disney D- disney's like if this is going to go tspn it's also going to go to espn plus or if we're putting siri right like paramount uh, and all of them are saying like if it's going to be on this or on this channel we're also going to have it on this service and we'd also like to take on more niche programming that we think could be here so the leagues and the distributors want the same thing they kind of want to figure out ways to have them in multi again going back to what we were just talking about with warner brothers discovery right that idea of like you're meeting consumers where they want to be met you're figuring out new revenue pathways in order to increase your brand longevity like that's kind of what what you're what you're aiming to do really simply um a lot goes into that but that's the simple overview of what you're trying to accomplish and so in that situation what you get down to is a world in which the three competitors have just enough programming at just the right value points. If you imagine a matrix, right, here's a line, the diagonal line that's going up. Are you above the line, which is positive, which is that the demand for your content is much higher than the price point? Are you underneath that line, which is the demand for your content is much lower than the price point? And that affects value perception. So when you have eight different services, it's really easy to fall under the line because you're you're competing for content, you're trying to find an audience, you're you're pricing what you think should be matched in the industry. When you're only three companies operating, let's say you're charging 18 bucks a pop, but you have the vast majority of content and each service has its own IP that's really special, has its own live offering that's really special, whether it be sports or news, all of a sudden you get to a point where the three services can create a sustainable level of revenue, a sustainable level of incremental growth, and a sustainable level of reduced churn. And so by that point, those three services that sit at 300, 400 million subscribers globally can see strong profit come through, which then leads to be the ability to then further invest at, at higher rates of content. The rates of content are not going to drop. Like that will, it's, it's just going to keep going up because production houses will have players to, to sell to. And although consolidation means they'll have fewer players to sell to, the competition amongst those three will be exceptionally high. And so they'll be wanting to spend more on the top talent and top, uh, top IP and top series, top films. So that's kind of where I see things headed. I think I think Jason, who I really respected as an executive, as I've really respected as a technologist, as a futurist, I think he's spot on. I think what he gets at more than any other, and is except maybe Iger, although they speak about it differently, but they're kind of on the same. Uh, they kind of view it the same way. Is 
you, you, the, your consumer is no longer one type, right? Like we used to look at there's the theatrical audience, there's the linear audience, there's, you know, the streaming audience, there's the YouTube audience. Your consumer is everywhere. Your consumer is on their phone, in the theater, then watching sports at a bar, whatever it might be. So you have to figure out a way to meet them where they are to generate the strongest revenue off their every single minute, which is terrifying and it sounds dystopian and it is, but it's it's a business, right? And we are so thirsty for content. Like we just, we just will have as much of it as we can. Uh, and so I think Jason and his piece gets to this, this idea of like, you cannot just pigeonhole and like, we're only going to do subscribe. Like you can only subscribe. We're not going to do ads. We're not going to do sports. We're not going to be on in fast, uh, platforms. We're not going to be on linear. We're not going to be in theaters. You're going to put the best product to the best fit to meet the best audience in the right in the right platform, the right distribution sector. And he and Iger, the two that really get to that, Zaslav also understands this, but Zaslav is so tied into this kind of linear idea and then trying to just make linear streaming without understanding the fundamental behavioral differences in audience and how splintering that can be and that he kind of feels like he's catching up in a really rushed way and i think that can lead to some really poor long-term decisions as he's trying to catch up it's not his fault it's just you've acquired a company in the heart at the at the at the heat of all this stuff happening and you're trying to make it work from a fiscal perspective that's difficult so i think when i read jason's piece I was like, this feels really obvious, but that might just be because I'm in it all day. So it feels really obvious, but it's also one of the best explained, best laid out plans for what I think is inevitably going to happen. Yeah, it's hard not to look at, I I think the question are the details, right? But it's hard not to look at Paramount Plus, Peacock, you know, NBC Universal, and Warner Brothers Discovery, HBO Max. Look at those three and imagine that all three of them in in a few years, in in two years, he says, in twenty four months, are going to be there on their own. In addition to Disney and Netflix, it feels like there's something that's going to happen to reduce the number of players. And the question is, do they all kind of come together? Does one of them get picked off by one of the other players, or by one of the platform play people like Amazon and Apple? Uh, but but yeah, it's hard to imagine that we're going to continue in this state where there are kind of five major streaming services, plus Apple and Amazon, plus a whole bunch of other smaller ones. So um, I, somebody should have a podcast where they talk about this stuff because it's going to be good next couple of, <laughs> month, couple of years. It's going to be good. Um, uh, oh, and the last point Jason Kalar made is just something that we've talked about here a bunch, which is... Uh, a more aggressive focus toward free ad supported models delivered over the internet. This idea that now that we've got our uh, prestige uh, pay for streaming uh, thing that everybody got really excited about the next step of it is actually to go back to the fact that sometimes people uh, just want to turn something on and watch it and are willing to withstand ads to see it and that you can offer that for free and make money on ads. And that's already starting to happen. And that's definitely going to be a part of every strategy going forward. So um, not a surprise there, but like I enjoy Jason Collar, the pundit, um, one time pundit. It's not like a regular column, but one time pundit. Jason should come on our podcast. There are a lot of people who tagged Jason, uh, our Jason, this Jason, and yep. myself in that 
in response to some Jason Kalar tweets when he was tweeting about. Um, also, I appreciate a man who threads his whole article because I've yes. done that where my editors have gotten really mad because they're like, oh, my God, you're literally just threading the article. And I'm like, yeah, well, this is how we uh, we, 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 we become influential. This um, is how it works. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to get Jason Kalar on, on downstream. We should work on that. We should. I could DM him, but I feel we're doing that. Uh, we should. If anyone <laughs> knows Jason and we should have him on, we'll do we'll do the three J's. We'll hang yep. out and it'll Triple be a J. great time. Triple J, Jason squared. This mm-hmm. will be great. So let him know in the new year. We're around. If he's around, let's just do it. Let's, yeah, let's he's talk. A, he's a pundit now. This is what he's doing. So, uh, yeah, let's talk he's about it. He's a smart guy. We like talking to smart people. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, moving on to a couple quick items before we uh, before we wrap this one. Um, Joe Dalian at Vulture, who has a very uh, fun, good newsletter that people should sign up for called Buffering. Check it out. And he's TV Mojo on Twitter. Um, he did a, a nice uh, piece last week about BBC studios. And I just wanted to note it because I think it's a really nice idea of like, okay, you're a public broadcaster in the UK. How do you navigate this new world? And what the BBC seems to have chosen to do, and Joe goes into it in his newsletter is say, well, okay, so BBC studios is a for-profit arm of a public broadcaster. Their job is to make money and they give the money to the BBC to do public service uh, broadcasting in the UK. So their strategy, so they're not, they're not, um, because of where they are, they're like, well, we can't really just make our own HBO Max, right? We can't do that. So what they've done is been more of the content arms dealer thing, and they have been very successful with it. Uh, Joe details uh, that they made deal- deals with most of the major players, uh, so among the examples, putting Ghosts, which was their successful sitcom on CBS, and still selling the uk version of it to hbo max which is quite a trick uh we mentioned a few weeks ago about they're gonna they've they're all in on moving doctor who to disney plus outside of the uk and having disney as the as the production the co-producer of that um they had great success with bluey on yep. disney plus as well and Huge a lot success. of a lot of docs that they make because the bbc is really good at documentaries and those are going in you know those are co-pros basically with nat geo on disney plus so a lot of great bbc content going on and a list goes on and on and on they do have a streaming service but it's a joint venture with itv in the uk and it's a niche service it's britbox for british and european and commonwealth and basically non-us content in in uh, the us or in north america um they have a deal with amc for bbc america although that i i I question their long-term uh viability linear but they do have a deal there they have basically deals with all the major players and uh, I think one of Joe's points is right now when the, oh, hey, everybody should just own their own streaming service, like, is not not the rule anymore. You end up looking at BBC Studios and you're like, good job. <laughs> you know, smart, smart move there. Just just make your money uh, with this content that you that you know how to generate that comes out of the UK and find partners for it for the rest of the world and t- and cash the checks and put it back into making more BBC programming. And I just thought it was a fun little story. We we do focus a lot on the US and I think that this is a really interesting example of uh, uh, a non-US b- traditional broadcaster, 100 years old, the BBC this year, figuring out a way to navigate this, I'm leaving aside also the intense political pressure on the BBC in the UK right now, where the government sort of has floated various schemes of how to not pay the BBC, that mm-hmm. the BBC uh, has been making money 
um, with mm-hmm. this strategy and getting the huge players in the entertainment industry worldwide to pay them for their content. Yeah, and I think the added benefit of doing this is the BBC recently has talked about how they're effectively like planning to not be a broadcast channel in 10 years. Like they're, yeah. like they're they've they've specifically said we think this is where the industry's headed. We're pivoting almost entirely to digital uh, and we're trying to figure out how to make that pivot work. One of the best ways to do that is brand identification. One of the best ways to do that is to ensure that you have money flowing in so that when you lose out on on that on on that massive massive amount of I mean BBC has like to to Jason's point like a lot of broad um government stuff that gets weird, but they still, you know, generate ad revenue. They still make a ton of money on that. And so if you lose out on the linear side and you're going to digital and you're you're worried about that chasm that's about to happen, ensuring that you can be the domestic home for the big brand stuff while also the ensuring global revenue significant global revenue over the next 20 years from licensing deals is pure is 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 genius it's a way to kind of bridge the gap you hear jason i talk about this podcast a lot i always say everything is a bridge right you're starting on this end you got to get to this end you got to make sure that bridge holds up you can't have that bridge crash and so the way did that bridge is is a sustainable revenue and growth like that is exactly what that bridge is not not exponential growth not exponential revenue you want to be able to sustain it to the point that you can get to the other end and then start planning your next iteration of your business which is what the BBC is doing and what I'll add to that is um this is the strategy every single domestic like in the US uh, broadcaster employees with their shows. When they look at global rights for like the Dick Wolf universes, they are specifically like, we're going to license out all of our stuff to local uh, distributors internationally instead of kind of going to one big global rights group and saying, because that's how we generate the strongest return on our investment at a global level. So you, you can talk to people at CBS and NBC and ABC and they're hyper aware of this. They're like, why would we try to carry things exclusively on our own internationally when it's worth more to license it out. The European broadcasters and the European linear channels have been better about this between uh, BBC, ITV Studios. They've just been much better about realizing that there's a huge market, um, both within domestic cable and then now within like kind of global streaming services and, and saying like, well, we'll maintain our local because we can generate the strongest ad revenue on it and still keep the brand identity as our things and then go outsource globally. And you'll see more of this happen. I can tell you from our conversations with certain clients who look at global rights, um, the, the big things that come up, the big conversations are typically – when we model out the valuation for a title, which we do pretty often, or a library, um, when we model it out, does it make more sense to, and by sense, I mean revenue, to partner with local distributors in regional territories? So typically you'll have like uh, someone in Britain saying, you know, should we partner with these eight networks in Greece and Poland and Spain, whatever it might be, because that's where we can make the most money based on the valuation of the audience uh, profile, uh, valuation of the title based on the audience profile, or, and this is where it gets tricky, does it make sense to figure out a much, much larger, much, much more complex rights deal with a global streamer? So like a Netflix and Amazon and Disney Plus. And the issue with a lot of that comes down to what those rights encompass. It tends to be if people see a show as a Netflix show globally, like Sandman, does Netflix get to create 
ancillary revenue off of that? Do, does Netflix get to create merchandise? So do they get to create a, immersive experiences? You know, if we look at Stranger Things, which is like the ideal situation for Netflix, there's stage plays, right? There's new shows. There's a huge ton of merchandise everywhere. Netflix owns all of it. If you have Sandman or if you have Bluey or if you have all these things, what percentage does Disney make from that? What percentage does it, does Amazon make from that if they, if they want to generate ad revenue off of it, if they want to do uh, ancillary revenue off of it? So the, the deals just get more complex, meaning the valuation gets more complex, and especially if it's a franchise title. So Doctor Who, what Bluey might become, like those get yeah. super, super granular because every because if disney's saying we're going to pay for the global rights to it we want to be able to ensure that we can stretch this out as much as possible um but it's very interesting and i think bbc and sony are both within this like content arms like we'd rather just uh sell wherever we can and then host wherever we can where it makes more sense and it's brilliant and you'll see others follow it in the next few years it's inevitable yeah uh the i know from paying attention to doctor who that the other part of this is uh, BBC only has enough money for a very limited number of production yep. productions and production budgets. Yep. And when you're making a show for the UK audience on a UK budget, that's a UK only budget. I'm not trying to say anything disparaging, uh, disparaging about it. It's just a small audience. And you want to sell it internationally. Your, your in-country production budget won't cut it right especially not now where you've got disney plus shows and star wars shows you know marvel shows all of those all of those shows so the other part of making these these deals is you get an infusion of money to make the shows at the level of quality required to sell them internationally that if they were all just on their own doing it the old way um they would have a hard time selling their content or making franchises where they could make a lot of money um very interesting situation that sort of evolved naturally but also kind of smart on their part um one more thing before we go is a letter i've got a letter here from billy i thought i would read it to you of course, you can all send us your letters via email. Downstream at Relay.fm is the best place. If you're in the Relay FM members Discord, question mark ask downstream. Billy says, we have giant media conglomerates like Disney or Comcast who own streaming services and linear TV channels, as well as film and TV studios. Can they just declare anything produced in-house will be distributed in-house? Nothing will ever be licensed to anyone else? Or do they have some legal or fiduciary responsibility to shop around to competitors? I vaguely remember antitrust laws around studios owning movies theaters and didn't know if there was some modern equivalent does every business unit have to keep their own set of books do usa network or peacock owned by comcast have to pay universal owned by comcast to air fast and furious owned by comcast what's the difference if they pay one dollar or a hundred million dollars when they're really just transferring money within the same parent company do they have to accept competitive bids during the process would it matter to shareholders if netflix publicly offered more than peacock is paying love to your mothers billy Oh boy. So, okay. There's a um, lot here. There's so a- let's, let's bring it down. So they, they do. So, so the first thing I want to address, because this, this gets brought up a lot is, um, Billy, when you said like, I vaguely remember the antitrust laws around studios owning movie theaters. So this gets into the paramount decrees of 1948. This gets brought up a lot. Uh, the idea was that studios was about eight of them. Uh, were owning theaters and they were and they were vertically integrating it so that the studios were releasing specific films into those specifically owned theaters and consumers had to go to those theaters to watch those movies. Those movies were not going to other theaters. This was the best way to make money. The Antitrust Committee of 1948 declared that this was anti-competitive behavior and prohibited this from happening. 
This gets brought up a lot. I can see why. They're like tangentially related, but also they're not. A great follow on Twitter for anyone who's super interested in antitrust law and entertainment is Peter Labuza, who is uh, – he has he, he has his PhD in literally this, and I believe he was working as a professor for a while at Berkeley. Now he works for uh, Producers Guild, um, working on all this type of stuff. But he's he's an expert, like one of the foremost global experts in this, and it's very interesting. So it's not exactly that. They do have a responsibility to make as much money as they can, so as which sounds lame, but they, they do. That's a, that is their fiduciary duty to shareholders. It is we are going to make as much money as we responsibly and ethically and legally can uh, for in order to that you guys can get the strongest uh, investment back. Uh, so what they'll do often is they have even if they know that it's going to go to you know Warner Brothers makes a movie, it's going to go to HBO Max. They still have to kind of shop it around. They still have to be like, okay, well, here's what the, we're going to pay for it. So often they'll pay more than what would be typical going rate. Uh, so they can't just say, you know, it's anti-competitive. They're saying here, we're going to outbid people for it. It's going to go to these services. They don't have a legal responsibility. So they could say, like, we're going to uh, put everything on, on HBO Max and the FTC, like there would be areas where the FTC could get involved, but not really. It's, you know, they own it. They're allowed to do whatever they want with it. And it's not like they're vertically, it's not like they're buying more and then stopping consumers from going somewhere else to get something. It's not like they're saying, okay, well, Batman's only going to play in this theater and then it's only available on HBO Max. You know, it's like, it's it's like, well, consumers can go watch it in theaters. And then when it comes to the home rental market, we're saying it's only available here. Like it, it, that to an extent, as of right now, is not anti-competitive. It doesn't mean that it won't be anti-competitive in 10 years. Someone could argue, there are people working on this, that it is anti-competitive. Um, to your question about the books, uh, or so, so let me just let me just let me just address the so that. So effectively, yes, when Warner Brothers makes a movie, HBO Max buys the movie from Warner Brothers uh to to stream on its platform. Um everyone laughs at this, right? Because this is how CEOs explain it. Like CEOs will be like, well, we still have to pay for it. And you're like, yeah, but it's owned by the same company. So it's like, you're paying yourself, you're generating revenue. You're, the revenue from this division is the co- is the loss at this division, but it all works out in the end for this one company. Um, typically, the verticals have their own books. This is called P&L. This was the huge Disney debate. This was who controls their uh, profits and losses, the books, and what Disney tried to do is just what tech companies do, which is they put all the books under one organizational head. So that way that one head could decide, okay, well, here's what my P&L looks like. And it goes across all the different studios and the entertainment divisions and the network divisions. And we can determine how we're going to spend the money. That is not usual at entertainment companies. The way you worded it is perfectly. Yes, like USA Network has its own books. Peacock has its own books. Universal has its own books. Comcast has its own books. And the idea is that this gives governance to leaders at those companies to make type of decisions where they're saying we're happy to allocate the cost here to the revenue over there uh, in order to, to balance out our own books and make the most that we can off our own product. It gets really complicated when it's all owned and by the same company because yeah. it comes back to, again, that thing of like, well, you're, it's one company making the money. Um, but what will you'll see happen going forward, This in, in, inevitably, like this isn't even a prediction. This is just something that's going to happen. These companies are going to license far more, but strategically. It'll go title by title by title. The way that a pay one window works, if anyone's interested, how it used to work. A company like 
uh, Fox would say to Disney back before they were owned by the same company, a company would say, okay, we want to pay for five years of pay one window, which means that after a movie goes to theaters, it then goes to this network. The way they work that out, because if you think about that in your head, you're like, well, how do they know how much money that movie is going to make? The way they work that out is very simple. If movie equates to dollar, dollar sign at the box office, we pay you this much. If movie equates to dollar, dollar, dollar sign at the box office, we pay you this much. And that kind of comes down that way. So you're looping everything together. Typically, like catalog licensing is kind of similar. This at this amount of series brings in this amount of viewers, and therefore it's worth this much. That's not going to happen as much. You'll see a lot more licensed title by title based on does this make more sense for our owned and operated platform, or does this make sense to go somewhere else and we can make more money off that? Um, you'll see that happen as they have more control over the, what titles they're licensing and what movies they want to bring to. That doesn't mean pay one windows are going to go away or those deals, but uh, it, it'll just become much more um, title by title. So I think it's a long way of saying there's a lot happening with the way that companies do things as consolidation <laughs> really increases. And it's only going to get more complex. But TLDR, they do have a fiduciary duty to make money. They do not have a legal duty to necessarily license it out to competitors. Um, they are going to do more title by title licensing. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just throw in, there is one case where they do have a legal duty to go to competitors, and it's when the contracts for mm. the the work that they're doing yes. include uh, people in the deal have money based on yes. basically residuals. They, they are a, as part of the deal, and it's based on the uh, the value, the net value of the product. And that yes. is the case where we've seen there have been lawsuits. Um, and you also have those scenarios where basically like HBO Max wants friends back. The cast of friends gets paid based on how big the sale of the rights is. And in those cases, they have to essentially put it up for sale knowing that they're going to be the buyer because they need to establish a market value for the rights so they don't get sued by jennifer aniston nobody wants to do that she's very litigious (laughs) i just made that up but uh, like she wants her money she that she got promised but what netflix has done and is going to be the standard going forward i suspect in a lot of ways although this also depends on various union negotiations including things that are going to be happening next year but what netflix has done is buy things up front and basically say, look, we're just going to buy you out. We're going to give you money for making the show. And then we own the show and whatever we do with it, you don't get paid anymore. We just, we just bought the show and they get paid. You get paid more up front than you would, but you're, you have no residuals. And that's, that's interesting in the sense that it gives Netflix no, no encumbrances, but it is a scenario where you end up with very unhappy people if they create an enormous hit. And aren't being compensated for the fact that it's a hit. Uh, and, and I do think that it, it, this is why streaming uh, residuals and streaming payments and how all of that is put together are going to be a huge. They already are, but will continue to be a huge labor story in Hollywood because everybody looks at the money that's being made and the people who are working on the product are saying yeah. we are not getting compensated based on what the world is like now. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to throw in there that there are those scenarios where if all you're doing is self-dealing and you sell the rights to friends to HBO Max for a dollar, that's fine if you're Warner Brothers, but it's not fine if you're the creators and writers and cast of friends who get right. paid are now sharing a portion of $1 when it should be $40 million or whatever. 
Right. And that, exactly right. Thank you, Jason. And that's, that's kind of what I was saying when like they price it higher. Like they know that there's going to be a bidding and they're, they're kind of like, we, to Jason's exact point, we have to establish value. We have to showcase what yeah. it is. Also, even if it's not really a competition, they need to establish a real market value that they can point at so that the lawyers are like, all right, you established it. That's, that's what we're going to use as the, as the calculation. Well, and and Warner, Warner Brothers TV would like to have $450 million. And if it goes right. to HBO Max, that gives them more money to spend on their content, which is why right. they, the organizational heads tend to own PL because they want to know exactly what they're doing with their money. It's just, there are, you know, notes that come down from the top that are like, we want to make this happen, figure out a way to make this happen. Typically what happens is they publicly overvalue it because they know that no one else is going to... If you read that AT&T story when it came to the Friends thing and they were like, at the level that we're going to spend on it, it makes more money sense to be on... It makes more sense to be on Netflix. It's because Netflix is not going to bet $450 million right. on Friends. So they're going to say, sure, take it away. Like, like that's just not... It's not what it's worth. And it's not... It's is friends worth four hundred fifty million? It maybe breaks even, maybe, and it's worth more to HBO Max in terms of retention. So it's, therefore, it's very right. valuable to HBO Max. But they publicly do it. And if you're David Schwimmer, you get a cat. You, you get a big check. <laughs> so you get everybody a big wins. Check exactly in that scenario. All right. If you have questions for us, I, I mentioned it earlier. I'll just say it again. Downstream at relay.fm. Uh, you can still somehow find us on Twitter for now, at least. Julia's at Loudmouth Julia. I'm at Jay Snell. Uh, you can also find Julia at ParrotAnalytics.com and Puck.News. And I am at SixColors.com. And uh, I also hang out in the Real FM members Discord. You can say hi over there. We will be back in a couple of weeks with a uh, silly holiday special. Uh, but until next time, Julia, say goodbye. Happy holidays, everyone. Bye. Happy holidays, everyone. <laughs>